0: Hello and welcome again to another exciting episode of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we get to talk about science and some weird science. Science you would not believe. Well, hopefully it, you do believe. Yeah, you will believe it, it because it's real. It is real. Yeah, it is. Genuine, yeah. genuine actual science that really happened. That's right. For sure.
1: But you definitely have to listen to the next half hour to really believe it yeah yeah like it's going to be a good half hour it's going to be true yeah
0: i'm i'm going to be talking about a, a a thing that probably people have never seen or possibly even heard of i'm going to be talking about velvet worms
1: oh it sounds like a character from um a tolkien novel velvet worm velvet yeah, worm tongue
0: it does it does sound a bit fantasy. i was thinking like
2: david lynch more I was going that that angle <laughs>
0: Well, it could be that blue too. Blue
1: velvet. The blue velvet they're, worm. They're, they're, oh, quite, they're, quite,
0: go there. they're quite bizarre. <laughs> yeah. They are quite bizarre. Yeah. And stay, stay tuned to find out what is a velvet worm and why are they so unusual. Claire, speaking of bizarre fantasy topics.
1: That's right. I have a pretty bizarre fantasy topic for us today. Um, it's about dragon blood and how dragon blood is going to help us – Slay microbes. Um, by dragons, I mean Komodo dragons.
2: Ah, so actual dragons. Actual real dragons. dragons.
1: Real dragons, real blood, real slaying of microbes. Real microbes. Real hashtag
0: microbes. science. <laughs> no, I did not just say hashtag science. Chris, speaking of science, yeah. what have you got for us today? Well,
2: actually, I'm it turned out this is um I caught my attention because one of my favourite natural disasters, not artificial disasters in tragedies in history, is the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. And it just so happens it ties into a story I did a couple of weeks ago with the the frog spit. It's all about fluid dynamics. It's all about how fluids work and this sort of thing.
0: And is is it another non-Newtonian fluid? Oh, it is. Partially, yes. Our favourite kinds of fluid. our favourite
2: kinds of fluid, other non-Newtonian ones. Yeah, so
1: this sounds like a sub-series on non-Newtonian fluids. Is this the direction you're heading?
2: It's it's an accidental direction, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I'm normally a big fan of Newton, as you know. Uh, but I'm going a bit non-Newtonian, uh, so you're in your rebellious phase. I'm in my rebellious phase. phase. Yeah, yeah. yeah Oobleck be next. I'll be talking about. <laughs> Watch out for that one. <laughs>
0: What velvet is right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I think so.
2: Refresh my memory. Is it like velour?
0: Yeah, but it's like fancy velour. Okay, yeah. I think velour is like a rip-off of velvet. Yeah. Okay. Made of plastic. And you know what a worm is, right? Yes. Yeah. Worm. Yeah. You've yep. seen. You've seen worms. I've seen worms. Uh, but do you know what a velvet worm is?
1: Uh, soft, soft to the touch. Worm.
0: Yeah, I'm going with what she said. Well. They're, they're pretty amazing little creatures, um, but you've probably never seen one. Um, or if you have seen one, you probably didn't know what it was because they're kind of weird-looking critters. They look kind of like worms, but they're not actually worms. And they look kind of like centipedes, but they're not centipedes. Um, and, in fact, they're not even technically arthropods at all. Where Where do they live? They live in very moist places mm-hmm. in rainforests and stuff. Right, pretty much. Um, Do they live underground? No, they live above the ground. Damn it! I Never- was going to make a velvet underground joke, but uh, it didn't, totally didn't work. Velvet overground. Yeah, yeah, that's where they live. Um, but they're grouped with um, the the arthropods uh, in a in a taxonomic group called the Panarthropoda, which they basically invented to include these guys and one of their cousins, which I'll get to in a minute.
1: Pan uh, normally just means like chimpanzee. D- <laughs>
0: Only, yeah, when it's by itself, it does.
1: Just a very broad description of a group. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, So these velvet worms evolved about 500 million years ago on the supercontinent Gondwana. Hmm. And that's obviously since split up due to artistic differences into different pieces, including Australasia, Africa, and South America, where you can find velvet worms.
1: What about Zealandia, the new continent I was talking about? Well, see, that the, the bit
0: above the ground, the bit above the sea of Zealandia just bubbled up relatively recently. It was a long time after.
1: Oh, so there are any velvet worms on Zealandia? Probably not. Okay. Unless they got,
0: you know, carried there somehow <laughs> by a bird, potentially.
1: <laughs> a flightless bird?
0: Well, they were flightless <laughs> when they got there. Anyway, um, so what are they? Their closest living relatives are pretty famous Amongst fans of extremophiles, the tardigrades, Ooh. water bear. the water bears that can survive space travel without any help at all, are their nearest living. Oh, they relatives. need like
2: a rocket to get them up there.
0: Well, yeah, but survive, get there is okay. One yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. But yeah, survive yeah. there, they don't yeah. need spacesuits or yeah, you know, tra- yeah. pressurized capsules or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but velvet worms are not as tough as tardigrades. Uh, they're also quite a bit bigger, so they're about two to four centimetres long. They sound like longer. opposite of top. They sound soft and delicate. They are very soft and squishy, and they lose water very easily. So ah. they kind of really need to stay in moist environments, which restricts them to pretty much to wet rainforests, effectively. Okay. Um, and they do have what you would call legs, but they're not really like legs of insects because they don't have any hard exoskeleton. They're soft-bodied and flexible. Um, and they move their legs by changing the internal pressure of the liquid inside them to move <laughs> oh their God. legs around. Like hydraulics kind of thing. They are basically hydraulic. They have hydraulic legs, and that's how <laughs> they walk around. Um, and they're also pretty cute. So unfortunately, you can't see a picture of them, this being an audio format. But they are sort of fuzzy-looking and squishy-looking like imagine if someone made a plush toy of a centipede oh. that's basically oh. what they look like they're, they're kind of quite cute. but don't let this fool you they are voracious predators of, Oh really of, of other insects right So how big are they? Well two to four centimeters right on on average and some yeah. of them get a little bit bigger than that. But they hunt through the moist leaf litter searching for insect prey to eat and they capture them in a very specific and unusual fashion. They spit at them. They uh, produce a special kind of super saliva or slime or sort of like the stuff that Spider-Man squirts out of his wrists when he's, like, zipping around being Spider-Man. Uh, but it's not web. Uh, it's more like super glue. Oh. Um, so this gluey slime dries really quickly and hardens in the air and traps the other insect in in this slimy blobby glue stuff that dries really quickly. And then the worm just kind of wanders along. Worm just
1: takes its time after that. Yeah,
0: it takes its time, bites off bits of the insect that's trapped and eats it as it's sitting there. Just changes a bit
1: of its pressure and waddles over. mm,
0: Yeah, I don't think they're very fast moving. No. Um, But but their gluey super saliva spit is very fast moving. Um, so it's, you know, it's pretty cold blooded. They eat their prey while they're still alive, except they don't really have any blood. So they're just kind of cold, uh, all the time, I guess. Um, but in some species of velvet worms, the hunting is a team effort. So like tiny prides of little wormy lions, <laughs> they hunt in groups what? and combining their slime squirts to catch larger prey, which an alpha female coordinates and gets her first pick of the of the smorgasbord.
2: Whoa. So like a pride of lions. Like, like I a pride say, of lions. So they can bring down a wildebeest? Well,
1: yeah, but probably
0: maybe a beetle. Right? Yeah, and
1: yeah. a pride of lions doesn't have an alpha female. They always have an alpha
0: male. Well, although the hunting is mostly done by females. Yeah, that's true. Mm. But
1: mm. I don't think they get the first. Um,
0: speaking of females, uh, the female velvet worms only give birth pretty much once in their lives in most species. And they can either lay eggs where the little worms hatch out later, or they carry their young to be born live, live births as well, wow. depending on which species. Um, so, I just discovered these things the other day when I was, you know, learning about weird animals of the world. Have um, you ever
1: seen one in the wild?
0: I have never seen one in the wild. And, like, the ones in Australia are mostly sort of brown and okay. black and blending to their, you know, leaf litter environment. So, you'd have to be looking for it to to find one. But some of the ones in other parts of the world are bright-coloured with blue and yellow stripes and purple and green and all these other weird different colours. So if you ever saw one Mm -hmm. and you didn't think it quite looked like an insect and you didn't really know what it was, it's probably a velvet worm.
2: They're the kind of thing that you hear about when there's like um, one of those big sort of bio books when they do it like an area they look at all the different species there and they'll usually find new
0: species of velvet worms because these things are around and people don't often realize yeah they they think there's probably a couple of hundred species of velvet worms that have never been described because they're hard to find and don't live where anything else that people are looking for actually Mm. lives so there they are velvet worms are probably the cutest grossest most vicious killers you've never heard of keep an eye out next time you're in the rainforest
1: So, I think Game of Thrones had it right, you know, and all those other fantasy books. Um, When we go searching for new ways to heal ourselves, the first place we should look is in the mystical creatures, in the dragon blood.
2: I would probably go for the unicorn blood, first
0: of all. (laughs) Um, Unicorn blood is supposed to be very good. It is, it is. But there are no unicorns. There are no
1: unicorns, but there are dragons Hmm. on Earth, specifically Komodo dragons. And researchers have just published a study in the Journal of Proteome Research, reporting that they've detected antimicrobial protein fragments in the Komodo dra- dragon's blood that appear to help the lizards resist some very deadly infections. This is very exciting.
2: This is interesting because, um, I, and you, I'm sure you're going to like tell us the truth all about the Komodo dragon the spit. Truth. But like people have long said that you know Komodo dragons have a lot of have a lot of bacteria in their spit. That's, That's right. why they're dead. Yeah. But is that not true?
1: No, 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 that, that this is, this is all true. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, just thinking about, um, new drugs, if, if these Komodo dragons can resist deadly infections, then hopefully we're going to be able to utilize this research to, um, to find some new antibiotics, which is pretty hmm. amazing. um, so, yeah, Chris, do you want me to tell you a little bit about Komodo dragons? I would love you to. Yeah. They're, they're pretty awesome. They're also quite terrifying. Um,
2: <laughs> There's not one in this room, though, so I'm feeling quite relaxed. All
1: right. Okay. Um, they're the world's largest lizard. Right. And they live on five small islands in Indonesia, um, Komodo being one of those islands that they live on.
2: Okay. So when you say world's largest lizard...
1: When I say world's largest lizard, I mean the largest reported dragon was three and a half metres and about 166 kgs. It's pretty big.
0: That is pretty big. It's
1: pretty big. Three and a half metres. Twice my size. Oh, Jesus. That's big. Um, Normally they're around 70 odd kilos though. Okay. Um, And the males tend to be a little bit bigger than the females. The really remarkable thing about Komodos though is how they kill their prey and it isn't what you would expect. So sure, they do a lot of biting and scratching and thrashing and all that sort of stuff that, that, yeah, you would normally see. I mean, they're basically a
2: land crocodile.
1: In such (laughs) large (laughs) reptilian (laughs) species of (gasps) land crocodile. Um, Different group though, taxonomy. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's not get, let's not confuse the issue. Okay. okay. Yeah, okay, good. but the really scary thing about them is their saliva because it's seriously toxic. It contains at least 57 species of bacteria. Um, and like you were suggesting, this is supposedly how they kill their prey. Um, so each Komodo dragon has these tooth serrations, these quite serrated teeth. Um, and being giant lizards, they can't clean their teeth effectively. So when they eat bits, bits of meat or carry on or whatever they're eating, um, uh, some of that meat gets stuck in their teeth, which provides this um, rich sort of protein junk, which is the perfect sustenance for all sorts of bacteria living in their mouth. Um, and, at least, and they found, researchers have found, that at least seven of these 57 bacteria species are highly septic. So we're talking your big guns of, um, of bacteria like your... Yeah. Yes your staff aureus. Your golden staffs.
0: So I guess I mean really if there's bacteria that's in their mouth because there's bits of flesh in their mouth and yep. the bacteria is living on the flesh, it yep. is literally flesh eating bacteria. That's why it's there.
1: <laughs> but it but it but it doesn't attack them.
0: Well, isn't that why we're
1: that's why we're yeah. yeah. So that's Ah, uh, so it. this is
2: about how they protect themselves this from is about their own how bacteria.
1: They protect themselves. Um But just to go back, so, yeah, so you're attacked by a Komodo dragon. You're bitten on the leg. Um, Stu, you don't have much time. Somehow you manage to outmaneuver the lizard, but unfortunately the bite will probably kill you in around a week just because of this septic bacteria. It's not so, looking so good I, for you. So
0: I don't get in a boat and find a hospital, or <laughs> I'm shipwrecked. Let's just say You're I'm shipwrecked, shipwrecked on
1: Komodo. You don't have you don't have much time. My mobile's out of credit. Yeah, and I mean, living on islands, this yeah, like this is a this is pretty advantageous for them because they live on an island. So there's only so many places that their prey can run to mm. before they get a, get septic leg and then fall over, fall over and, and can't and, get up. Mm. Yep. We've all
2: seen Jurassic Park. We know how that works. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, but when they fight each other, when Komodo dragons fight each other, their bites are not deadly. Um, suggesting they've got something really interesting going on in their blood, mm. um, which mounts this immune response and something that we might be able to harness, which is what the researchers have done. This is <clears throat> this is where the dragon blood research comes in, right. obviously. Um, so... In the blood of nearly all living things, there's um, there are these sort of small peptide fragments called cationic antimicrobial peptides, um, and they're part <clears throat> and they're part of the innate immune system. So this is pretty much what keeps you alive in the two or three weeks um, if you've been if you've um, like if a bacteria gets into your system, it's what keeps you alive. Um, until your body ha- has time to make some antibodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is sort of like innate immunity first line it's like before you can first
0: line defense against
1: yeah. things just randomly is that first line up. or is first line like your skin? Well, I guess your skin, second but... line, but your innate immunity yeah. anyway. Um, so the researchers took the plasma from the blood of the dragons and and analysed it with these newly developed techniques that use nanoparticles to capture these peptides from the blood. Um and from this bio prospecting, their word, not mine, but a great word, bio prospecting, sounds like sifting through um through blood to find small pieces of gold to me. Just imagine small some pe- pe- small guy small peptide.
0: With a with a with a, a pick going, I'm
1: staking my claim to this, <laughs> this hero dragon blood. blood!
0: <laughs> <Yeehaw>! <laughs> there be dragon blood in these heroes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> great word though. Yeah. Um Anyway, so from this bioprospecting, they were able to identify and capture 48 potential um, peptides that they thought were quite important. And then they discovered that from these 48 peptides, 47 of them were derived from histone proteins, which are known to have antimicrobial properties. Um, They then synthesized eight of these peptides and tested them Against two particularly nasty kinds of bacteria, so the *Staph aureus* or the golden *Staph*, your multiple-resistant *Staph aureus* that I was talking about, and also your *Pseudomonas aeruginosa*, um, which is pretty pretty nasty as well. If you if you if you Google those two, then some really awful photos turn up in Google Image. They're I'll ugly bacteria. Um, no, no, what they do to humans. Oh, is okay, ugly. okay, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. flesh-eating stuff. Yeah, 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 or, yeah
1: awful. Anyway, with these eight synthesized peptides, seven of them were effective at killing both of the bacteria in lab-grown cultures, while one of them was effective against um, the aeruginosa specifically, but not the staph aureus, which is pretty amazing Mm. um, considering how, you know, that we don't really have that many antibiotics left Mm. that are effective against some of these bacteria. So it's early days at the moment, but researchers hope that future studies of the peptides can lead to, um, yeah, new classes of antibiotics, which can potentially slay these deadly superbugs, just like dragons.
0: I'm Maggie Adair Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
2: All right, so yes, as I was saying, one of my um, favourite odd disasters in history is the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. Have you guys heard of this? I have. I have. I have, I have actually. But only recently. Yeah?
1: Yeah, on a, on, a, on a TV show.
2: It's been around a while. Um, it happens <laughs> for well, ne- nearly, nearly 100 years. Nearly 100 years, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's got some attention because there's been some analysis, more analysis lately about the... Uh, what contributed, why it was so deadly, you know, and the physics behind it. And, you know, I love to talk about the physics that is behind everything. Um, and I'm a bit of on a, um, going with the flow of fluid dynamics at the moment. So, you know, I would sort of make bad puns about that. I could see that didn't work, so I'm going to move on. Anyway, so the great, for those who don't know, the great boston Massacre Flood, of course, happened in the city of Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States. It was on the 15th of January, 1919, um, about 12.40 p.m., um, was lunchtime. Yeah, there was this enormous tank of molasses, a 15-metre high tank of molasses, um, and it burst, basically, and there was a wall of molasses that that poured out. It was described as being eight, Meters high and said to be moving at about fifty-six kilometers per hour. Whoa, which, so that's pretty quick. That is very fast. It's you the cannot run that car. fast. You cannot run that no. fast. Do you. Um, it killed twenty-one people and injured one hundred and fifty oh. more. So it's one of those things that does sound like it's kind of funny at first, but and then you realise people died. But um, don't worry, all the, the victims are long, long dead. So don't worry about that. Um,
0: well, they died in nineteen nineteen. The victims. I guess they
2: did. Yeah. yeah. So the, um, the
0: survivors might be also long gone too.
2: The description for the New York Times said, A dull muffled roar gave but an instant warning before the top of the tank was blown into the air. Two million gallons of molasses rushed over the streets and converted into a sticky mass the wreckage of several small buildings which had been smashed by the force of the explosion. Wagons, carts and motor trucks were overturned. A number of horses were killed. The street was strewn with debris intermixed with molasses and all traffic was stopped. Um, the Boston Post reported that the molasses was waist deep, it was swirling and bubbling about the wreckage. So it was a pretty bizarre and frightening scene. Um, Is this
1: the only molasses related disaster that's ever happened?
2: That I'm aware of. There was a London beer flood in about 1814 <laughs> from a tank of beer that burst right, and okay. killed about eight people. Yeah, but I, um, I
1: mean, I imagine the fluid dynamics of beer are. A bit more predictable than
2: yeah. Well, particularly in this case because people have wondered because January in Boston is fairly cold, I guess, and molasses is fairly thick. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with molasses. Yeah, sticky sugary question. What is molasses? It is basically it. It's kind of a product of when well, you get out of sugar, essentially There's the sugar syrup. And you get this real thick goo, and it's off. It's used to uh, well, it's used to make alcohol often, like rum is made from molasses. But you know, ethanol and and that sort of thing, which of course has many industrial uses. And that seems to be the main um, reason Isn't that they had a big tank of molasses, right. in so Boston they were storing the
0: it to, for use in manufacturing. Yeah,
2: it was the um, the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. It was that um, that owned the tank. Uh, Yeah. So the question is, how did this actually happen? And there's been some work done recently um, presented at the the um, conferences of the American Physical Society and the American Association of Advancement of Science by a fluid dynamicist called Nicole Sharp. She runs a Tumblr blog. Uh, can I say rude words on on, on Lost in Science?
0: Just um, yeah, just be warned that there may be some rude words. Some bleeping
2: out. Um, it's called Fuck Yeah, Fluid Dynamics is her blog <laughs> um, because she is a big fan of fluid dynamics.
1: That was worth it.
2: Um, and anyway, she and her colleagues, yeah, they've tried to figure out what exactly happened and they've tried to... To, uh, to recreate the conditions. What they actually did was they went into a cold storage unit that had a little scale model of the area, and they poured cornstarch to substitute for the molasses to see how it would flow. And then they did calculations and scaled it up to work out exactly what had happened. Um, so, yeah, so look, what basically the thing that happened there is this was this great big tank... Enormous tank, as I said. Um, And there's a lot of weight of molasses. So even though molasses normally flows very, very slowly, when there's a lot of weight behind it, things are a bit different. So this initial flow, it's what's called uh, a gravity current. Um, And basically what happens when a heavy fluid, in this case molasses, flows into a lighter fluid, in this case air, air, And you kind of get it, it, it's kind of, yeah, there's this free-flowing as, as a big kind of, hor- it's normally a horizontal flow like that. It's basically the same as a lava flow or an avalanche, or as described, described, um, the cold air that comes in under the door. Um, so it's like the, the denser cold air flowing under the, the Sometimes the it's like
1: air. an avalanche of air.
2: It is like an avalanche of air. Um, so yes, this created a fast-moving molasses tsunami that would that um Nicole sharp estimates would have lasted about 30 to 50 to 60 seconds so fairly quick but moving at 56 kilometers an hour or 15 meters per second they can get a fair weight in that wow. time and um, now but what turns out the molasses is also it's a sheer thinning fluid like the frog spit we discussed a couple of weeks ago do you remember how oh, yes. the fro- frog spit worked? Mm. This is like a frog's sticky tongue. And what it does, like when the spit hits something, it's moving fast. It got, it reduces viscosity and flows over quickly. That's but right. then when it stops, it, viscosity increases and it becomes very sticky. A bit like velvet worm spit as well, if you want to picture that, yes. as you've just heard about. Um, so, yeah, this is what basically happened with the molasses. It flowed very fast as initial stages. However... It did also, the cold also had an effect. And when the temperature drops, the viscosity increases. Uh, markedly, and this turns out to be possibly the cause of most of the problems is that basically it flowed everywhere, and then it was very thick, and people got stuck in it. There's one particular story about a group of firefighters. They're in their, their firehouse. It was basically knocked down by the um, by the molasses, and then they were trapped uh, for hours and took hours to reach them. And most of them survived, but one of them basically it was about two hours or more that he he tried to to stay up and ultimately he drowned because he was just he couldn't keep. The, the molasses away and they couldn't. the rescuers couldn't get to them because the molasses was so thick people were just stuck in it so yeah that is like fluid dynamics is a secret of the, the molasses um, peril, peril the terror um, they're still trying to figure out what made the tank actually burst um, there are some various theories might have been a mixing of warmer molasses that they poured in with the cold molasses as talk about fermentation um, there's also poor tank manufacture apparently the tank was very leaky and poor um, yeah poor construction they the manufacturer painted it brown so that people wouldn't notice the molasses leaking, basically. Um, which clearly was not a suitable kind of substitute for actually fixing the thing. But um, yeah, the great molasses um, flood, it left Boston sticky for a long time as you can imagine. And some people today claim that on the hot days you can still smell the molasses in that part of town. I don't know whether that's true or not, but
0: um, Check it out next. It time sticks you're around.
2: Boston. Yeah.
0: Not such a sweet story, Chris. No. Sorry, Stu. that's all we've got time for on this episode of lost in science thanks for tuning in and joining us lost in science is recorded at the studios of 3cr in melbourne and broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the community broadcasting foundation if you want to talk to us talk back to us uh you can get in touch we have a gmail account lost at gmail uh you can also find us on twitter and on the facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Science!